This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Right on, everybody. So, welcome. Um, so happy to speak to you all, and uh, particularly to, to speak to singles. You're going to give me whiplash if you sit over there. Don't worry about my whiplash. Okay. For me. Uh, by the way, I, I, I may not look so presentable right now. I'm coming from mountain biking, and normally my pants are just like permanent, like I never even have to do anything. But I was uh, I was walking my mountain bike down a flight of stairs to get to a friend of mine's house who was barbecuing some uh, some meat. And he, he's kind of short, and his family's short. But there was a, there was a bougainvillea covered in thorns, like making an arch that I was too tall for. So I managed to get a nice scratch right across my head, and then this wow. this pair got grabbed by the bougainvillea, and so now and I'm I'm, holding, I'm wheeling wheeling my mountain bike while this is happening, and now I'm connected to the bougainvillea via my payas holding a 45 pound mountain bike. It was quite an experience. So if I look a little disheveled, it's because I am. So I'd like to have a little fun with this one, because I've been I've been speaking to singles forever. I mean, I, I remember my first single Shabbos I gave. I was a little naive at the time, so I went to the Upper West Side, and you know, they said I'm doing this you know singles weekend Shabbos, like a whole Shabbos experience. Two hundred people signed up, and this is going back to like who knows the '90s, like the mid '90s. So back when I met uh, Mrs. Kleinman over here, and. Uh, Anyway, Miss Clayton. I don't care what you say in this room. So, so the, uh, anyway, I show up to this thing. And I'm expecting, you know, the average age is going to be like maybe 20, maybe 18 to 25 or something. Turned out no one was under the age of 40 at my 200-person singles event. And that was my introduction to the Upper West Side, which my wife says is called the Upper West Side, but I call it the Upper West Side. And... We've been in this discussion for quite some time. But let me ask someone who lived there. Do you call it the Upper West Side or the Upper West Side? The first. Oh, really? So that's where I learned it. So I learned it on the Upper West Side. So anyway. The, and I learned it from people living on the Upper West Side. Anyway, so I'd like to have a little fun with tonight's class. Not that I know what that means exactly, but... In the past, I've given a lot of Musser, and, uh, and because I, I have that famous class, which is the five ways, the six ways of expediting meeting your soulmate, which is the happy class. But you can look that up online, H-A-P-P-E-Y. I know that's not how you spell happy, but this class has six steps, not five, so happy might have worked as an acronym, but I needed that extra E. And it's uh, a lot of people have watched that class, and a lot of people have got married. And in fact, I just met a guy, Motsi Shabbos, that took my advice to write notes to his to his wife, even though he had no idea who she was. But the, but the the second of the acronym is A H A A is alive. That your soulmate is probably alive, unless you're planning on marrying someone thirty years younger than you. I speak. So that your soulmate's alive already. And so the women have a certain job and the men have a certain. And the men, one of the jobs of the men was to write her Shabbos notes every Shabbos. 
and that you would have put by her candles if you only knew who she was. And, and then when you finally meet her, give her the notes, which is exactly what he did. He gave her the notes. And he just told me this. And uh, they're kind of a famous couple. What's the name of this couple? Uh, um, uh, Beh- Behar, Behar. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Chaya uh, Sara and Yossi Behar. Yeah, and uh, so Bochem, he got married. I don't know how old he is, but it's his Zivagrishon and amazing. And and uh, uh, speaking of Zivagrishon, that's amazing. Is uh, my wife heard a famous outreach lady named Jackie Engel from Australia. And my wife, MacArthur, she had her aha moment in my class at Asian Torah. And out of sneers, whenever a woman would have her aha moment in my class, you know what an aha moment, meaning that there's a God and that Torah is real? The aha moment. So she had it in my class, which means I immediately deliver her to my wife. Whoever had an aha moment got delivered because I was not the Rebbe of these young ladies. And my wife takes it from there. But she also carved my brother, Aaron. Um, who uh, sometimes the brother isn't the one to do the job. But my wife was, you know, beating him over the head with her spatula every day because um, he came to our wedding and stayed for a month. And he danced in Tel Aviv every night. And he, every, every day around noon when he woke up, he drove to Jerusalem thinking he was going to visit with me. But I was in Kolo. So I was in Kolo. All he had was my wife. And my poor wife, in her first month of marriage, had to deal with my brother all afternoon. And... He's, of course, arguing against our lifestyle, and apparently she won. And uh, anyway, but Jackie and Aaron married uh, now, this is now 30 years later, they found each other and married. And uh, so it's, you never know when it is. But that was one of the points that I wanted to say was that, was that shouldn't we have a, shouldn't we have a new, uh, I mean, this is going to sound super unorthodox, but I, I am known as the unorthodox orthodox, or am I? So, um, shouldn't shouldn't we um, shouldn't we kind of get rid of this whole waiting for our soulmate thing, and just uh, and just instead just get married multiple times, meaning meaning just marry someone for like a few months or a year or something. Oh, is marriage expensive? No, alimony is. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're talking like lots of prenuptials, you know. <laughs> A lot of legalese. Yeah, but shouldn't that, because think about it, if someone is observant, if someone's observant, and they're committed to Torah, and they're committed to Allah, and they're committed to mitzvah, isn't it? So, so they can't do what everyone else does in the, in the Gentile world. Um, because they're committed to Allah. So, so if you meet someone who seems like someone you can get along with at least for half a year, with proper legal, you know, obviously make sure it's not going to be prohibitive, and, and just go ahead and get married. Worst comes to worst, you at least can prove in the dating scene that you're capable of getting married, meaning you can say, Hey, I, I've been married five times in the last two years. You know, like, like I'm, I'm excellent at getting married. I have a friend who's married. I have a friend who's married nine times. 
nine times, yeah. And every girl he marries, he's a very Kabbalistic guy, and every woman he marries, he brings up one of the spheros. <laughs> yeah. Well, the amazing thing is, his ninth wife seems to be like lasting quite some time. They've been married for, my goodness, I mean, it's been at least, at least a couple weeks. I mean, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. They've been married like for, I would say, a couple of years already. And uh, yeah, it's, it's something. But he's been married nine times. I mean, this guy is a pro at getting married. He's not a pro at staying married, but he's a pro at getting married. And he apparently learned something along the way because he's been married for years now. But that same guy could have stayed single all these years. Because every, not every Zivu, but some of those Zivugan were kind of obvious. They weren't going to last very long. No offense to him, and I wasn't going to speak up. You know, it's like, <laughs> speak now or forever hold your peace. You know? I, I held my peace. But you can imagine out of those nine out of those nine marriages, some of those marriages were not so impressive. And, uh, right, eight of them. No, some of them were pretty impressive. But they, this is my first crazy piece of advice. My first crazy piece of advice is just, just, just break the ice. Go ahead and get married and, and then get divorced afterwards. You know, doesn't have to be so quick. But you can get married after, you can get divorced too. Now, anyway, that was my first piece of advice. Um, I'm not expecting anyone to keep my first piece of advice at all. That means, that was just a crazy thought of mine. And uh, it's something maybe worth, worthwhile. I've, ne- I've said it before individually. I've never said it in a class and certainly not online. But, um, you know, it is a nutty idea. I've said it individually to people, but not one person's ever taken me up on that. I think what happens is there's a lot of romantic notions that that getting married is going to be like more special than just a trial and error type of marriage. You know, that I think we have in mind that this is going to be something more special than that, and and maybe maybe so, you know, maybe so, but but there's also there's also, I don't know, there's, there's also something about, about being with someone, even if it doesn't feel magical, you know, that to be with someone, even though it's not, doesn't, maybe it's not so magical, um, but, but to be, to be with someone is, uh, you know, I can tell you even in marriage, like marriage can be pretty magical, but it can also be being with someone some of the time. It's not always, you know, it's not always cherry pie. And but you but there's someone there with you for your lifetime, and and I think that we have friends like this. We have friends like this, but again, it's it's a strange thing in our community because of the if the commitment to Alafa means that that there's a, you know there's a, there's large missing parts of life which include intimacy and and um, seems to be seems to me that, it, that it's a possibility. Now, I would like to segue from that, considering all of you are looking at me like I'm absolutely this. <laughs> and, I, and I was saying it, you know, a bit facetiously, 
But I think it, uh, we could segue, nevertheless, to a more serious, more serious but related is is that I'd like to maybe give a deep class now on identity and just kind of see where it goes. Um, hopefully, we can all tough it out and follow the follow the this line of thinking. Um, Let's see where it takes us. Human identity is is by far the most fragile thing that there that there can be. Um, or what comes to mind is like a a kind of a crazy image, and forgive me for its shocking for its shock value. It wasn't why I'm bringing it up, but but the I saw a clip once of of children being carried away by social services where you could see they had been badly wounded by their their mother. And in the same clip, you could see the mother with handcuffs being placed into a squad car while they were being carried off to child services. And the two children, as they were looking over their shoulder, they could see their mother, you know, 30 yards away, and they were they were screaming, Mama. And, you know, it's a, it's a horrible image, but something deep and true. Something deep and true, and that's, and that's that, that, that self-identity is, is complex. It's complex, and it's, and it's con- com- complicated in that uh, there's a certain level of maintaining identity even when the identity that we maintain is not something we necessarily would want or like or appreciate. And it, and this is actually an excerpt now, what I'm about to share is an excerpt from the Possible Use Seminar, which I've been running now for 23 years, and it's a small section, which is called the Misery Comfort Zone, MCZ, Misery Comfort Zone. Now, of course, it sounds strange because if it's miserable, not comfortable, but I imagine all of you understand that intuitively we have a misery comfort zone. There's a certain amount of misery that we're comfortable with, and anything that prevent pre, anything that <coughs> threatens. Sorry, that word just fell out of my brain. Anything that threatens to make us happier, we will sabotage. I'm going to say it again. The misery comfort zone is the amount of misery we're comfortable with. And anything that threatens to make us happier, we will sabotage. Now, this misery comfort zone, it goes on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 being obviously extremely miserable. And uh, 1 being, I like to call 1, in, actually in my book, I call 1, I called it Zelig Pliskin. I actually put Rabbi Zelig Pliskin's name at number 1 as the title of a number 1. You know, when Zelig Pliskin, you know, he's like... It, you know, coming home at 80 years old, saying, hi, honey, I'm home, and he looks at his belt counter and sees he's still a kilometer left of walking that he didn't complete. And says, I'll be right back, and uh, leaves the house. He's walking up and down Saratskin Street to get another mile in so he could count the proper numbers. And I ran into him in the airport, and I said, oh, where you been? He was on his way back to Israel. He says, oh, I was in Australia I said, oh, yeah, classes in Australia. He said, no, no, I was visiting my, my great-grandson. You flew to Australia to visit your great-grandson. 
nobody flies anywhere to visit a great grandson. He's like, yeah, my great grandson, he's in yeshiva in uh, Australia. And I thought to myself, you know, how can I not have a relationship with my great grandson? So I flew to, uh, I flew to Australia for the week and spent the week with my great grandson. Can you imagine his great grandson, you know, in, in yeshiva in the dormitory? He's like, yeah, this is my great grandfather. He'll be hanging around. Let me introduce all my friends. Anyway, but he has like, like no, no amount of misery is comparable to him. You know, is zero misery. And a 10, obviously, in my book, 10, I put already jumped. Fling 10. It's a 10. Didn't succeed, obviously. You know, he must have been wearing a helmet. But the, the, because he's still alive and he's a 10. But anyway, we are. The, 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 what we're going for here right now is to understand that that we have, we're crazy, that human beings are crazy. Why would you have a misery comfort though? And the answer is because just over the years, they developed a certain amount of identity and then it's a little more, a little more, and some of it's your parents' culture and some of it's a Holocaust culture, both Holocaust culture, survivor culture. And some of it is, uh, some of it was dad saying life is hard and, and uh, some of it was uh, grandfather saying it's hard to be a Jew and, you know, and the, and then there was, then there was missing love, missing love, lots of missing love. I mean, think about it on a scale of one to 10, how, how much growing up, how much did your father and mother love you on a scale of one to 10? How much did they love you? A 10. What do you guys, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, your parents loved you at 10. Okay, now, you ready for the next question? On a scale of 1 to 10, how good were your parents at showing you love? Like, focus love on you. Like, how good were they at that? And so what you'll notice is, if, it's, if they're like most parents, probably lower than 10. Just because, you know, not every parent gets it. You know? And now, let's just say, let's just say, let's say give them a, Give a nice score like a five. Let's say you give them a five for showing love. And obviously, each parent's going to get a different number. The men will generally rate their fathers lower. And women will rate their mothers lower. And the, but whatever number you give them. And now, take that number and divide it by the number of siblings you have. <laughs> because you had to share it. And, and you know, so if, if they're getting a four or a five, for showing you love specifically, like really tailoring it to you. And then dividing that up. Oh, did I say among siblings? Uh, there's also their own occupation, their hobbies, their, their various other things they were up to. And I imagine if you have Jewish parents, they were up to things because, you know, parents, Jewish people generally have projects just to assuage their horrible guilt for being alive. You know, you got to have hobbies and... Uh, Certain passive things you do and like community service. And, and so all of that's getting divided. Now, tell me how much of a need on a scale of one to 10 was your need for that love? What, how much did you need? The answer was a 10, 100% a 10. And so if they were not able to provide, which they weren't, if they were not able to provide, so then what happens is 
part of my misery comfort zone is my relationship to intimacy. Because that is our original intimacy relationship. Do you know how many times I've spoken to men, for example, who, uh, and I'm, this is not a general principle, I'm just saying how many times I've met individual men who, when I, we go outside, they're smoking. When we're inside, they're munching. And like, they're just hand to mouth all the time, and the guy's large, yeah? And, and then, as I get to know the guy, he lets me know that his mother was nursing him, and all was going well, when all of a sudden, uh, she got pregnant. And, she, and he just got cut off, right there. And, and, in other words, those cigarettes and the food, and this hand-to-mouth business, is just, he's just nursing himself. He's nursing himself all these years. And this is, this is like deep identity. That's deep stuff. Very deep identity stuff. And that's inside of all of us, including myself. And I bless my wife for putting up with, with my things and bless me for putting up with hers. And, and you know, all the missing nutrients become identity for us. They become identity. And... What's something's identity? Because human beings have no idea who they are. Like, for example, um, if I ask this crowd, I don't know how many you are here, but you look like you're about 40, 50 people. I don't know. Uh, yeah, something like 40 people. Um, if I asked you guys, who would be willing to come up and tell us exactly who you are? <laughs> I love this guy. <laughs> yeah. Would you really do it? Yeah, sure. You might be on, on Facebook, too. So come next to me. It's just come stand here. This is me. I've asked this so many times, and no one's ever said yes. Yeah, hundred percent. Who am I? I'm a Jew. I'll keep going. Simple. Keep going. I'm a guy that likes to be honest, um, however honest I can be. Um, I am I have plenty of flaws that I'm aware of. All my flaws uh, and all my issues, which some of them I don't. Uh, some of them are things I know I need to work on, but I don't necessarily because I'm imperfect. Um, but obviously, I still have problems with them. Um, but I know the things that I am good at, and I'm proud of the things that I'm good at. Um, and for me, being a Jew is is like my identity. Like that's that's really that's literally all that. Like that's that's really important for me. And I'm I don't, I'm not I wouldn't say I'm the most perfect Jew. I'm not the most religious Jew. I try I do the best I can. Um, but I know that there are, I know the goals that I should strive for. And even though I'm not successful always in, in attending them, I know that, that, that like there's the direction that I should be going. And then I try to walk that direction. That was amazing. I've, you know how many times I've asked that, like, Who's willing to get up here and just say who they are? Never did anyone raise their hand. He's like, I will. I will then get up here and do it. Yeah. The reason why, um, now obviously if we took a deep dive and we kept going deeper and deeper and deeper, you would discover that you're you're kind of exactly what you said, a Jew. But if we took a deep dive, we'd really get down to the soul. And once we get down to the soul... It would actually have in common with everyone in this room, 
meaning if you really took a deep dive and stripped away everything that's not you, what would be you would be just this like giant nuclear power plant ball of energy of, of essence, of true essence. But how many of us walk around that way as, as this like deep, deep nuclear power plant of essence? And if you could press a button, how often would you press it? You know, and if you could get it in a pill, how often would you eat it? You know, you'd just be like, I'm going for big ball of vibrational essence. Like, that's me, you know. And, and yeah, and not to mention the fact that it makes you an absolute magnet for people. You know, think about it. Your identity is both who you are, and it's also like bug repellent, and everyone's the bug, you know. <laughs> Because in essence, when you're in true essence, this is why when a toddler walks in the room who's nobody, because a two-year-old doesn't have any sense, they don't have self-awareness till they're three. And even not then, three to, somewhere between three and four, you get your first self-awareness. That's why you'll notice they'll stop calling themselves by their first name. You know, you know it's like, it's like, uh, you know, she'll be like, honey's hungry. Honey wants some. You know, Yankee wants and then all of a sudden it's I want. Suddenly there's an I, and that's when self-awareness occurs. But till that self-awareness occurs, those kids are electric. They are magnetic. You know, take them into any public space and just everyone's just like, Ooh. and you know, like you just can't get enough of that kid. You're just kind of open. That kid just comes running up to you and jumps in your arms, and they don't accuse you of kidnapping. But you're like, they are magnetic. And you'll notice that once in a while, once in a while, you yourself forget who you are. Once in a while, I don't know how often you forget who you are, but hopefully it's more often than not, you'll forget who you are, and all of a sudden your vibrational energy goes like bonkers, and everyone's saying hi to you on the street, and you got random people walking up to you, and, and uh, little kids are like jumping out of their parents' arms just to maybe you'd hold them, and you, you get magnetic sometimes. Okay, for some people it's rare, you know, but we've all felt it. We've all felt it where, like, like almost everyone's saying hello to us on the street. It's one of those moments, and those moments happen when we drop our identity. When you, when you, when you don't have that identity, so, so when you're in true essence, your vibrational energy is so high that it just automatically becomes a, 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 a resonance with every other person. And... And that makes you magnetic. Well, in the, when it's not like that, it's, it's usually because we're in our identity mode. And our identity is super complex. We don't understand most of it. Uh, a lot of it is, um, you know, like really, uh, what's your first name? Hi. So hi, really, you could have gone on for another half hour because we're, we're pretty complex in that identity. But that same identity takes away a lot of our magnetism, and a lot of that identity, we would hide if we could. Imagine, that here's a good muscle, imagine you wake up in the morning and you, and you uh, somehow while you're asleep, megaphones came off both sides of your head. And, they all, and all they do is announce at full volume, publicly, um, everything you're thinking. <laughs> but you didn't realize they were on your head. So you like go outside the house, you're walking down the street, and you're like hearing yourself think at full volume, people are like, <laughs> you know, you look around, you're like, holy moly, you know, you got two megaphones off my head, you know. Like, how quickly would you find the nearest basement 
and be like calling a surgeon. <laughs> Please remove these thoughts from my head. <coughs> so that's a ridiculous muscle, but we are doing that. I mean, we are broadcasting. And we're broadcasting all kinds of stuff. And, and it's like, sometimes it's better we don't leave the house, really. You know, I, I, I had one Shabbos. I, I basically rate my energy by how often people say good Shabbos to me when I'm walking down the street. So, and I dive into Meisharim, where people aren't exactly the most outgoing. And good Shabbos is understood without saying it. You know, we don't need to say good Shabbos. We can just understand that it's good Shabbos without actually acknowledging the person you're walking by whatsoever. So, so I kind of rate my vibrational energy based on how many good Shabbos I get. And what I find is that even the, the most like stern, stone-faced Yerushalmi, who's like, he hasn't said good Shabbos to anyone on the street, maybe, ever, um, they will say good Shabbos to me when I walk by. They're just like, they can take me. Thank you. Yeah, I was wondering where my notes were for this class. <laughs> oh, thank you. So when I finished davening in Shul, when I finished davening, there's a, a Yid who, he's the Dayan of our Shul, he's the Posik of the Shul. And uh, he and I generally have a schmooze after every day after. But I, I was feeling so, such a klipa on me, such a, ugh, like a yuck on me that there was like no good energy coming off of me. And so I was just kind of interested to see what would happen that night because I could sense like my energy off. And... So I went up to him as usual. He's by the Arnica edition. I went up to him as usual to have our schmooze. We did not speak more than five seconds before he went, oh, Yankee, and then like went and spoke to a friend. Never, ever happened. Then on my way out of shul, our shul, uh, our particular shul in Meisharms, everyone says good job to absolutely everybody. So I, it's the opposite of what I said on the streets. It happens in our shul. And so everyone literally will not leave shul for a good 10 minutes of saying good chops to hundreds of people. You, you don't leave until you say good chops to everyone. You want to hear something weird? On weekdays, you have to say, good, good, you have to say uh, Morgan. Morgan with a little nod to everybody in shul. Everybody says good morning to everybody in shul on weekdays. Yeah, it's the strangest thing. And I really like it, though. I, I think it's very nice. And, I, and we've discovered only recently that serotonin... It, one of the greatest boosts for serotonin is social interaction. And so, unfortunately, the days we need serotonin the most, like low mood days, are the days we dafka don't go out. And that's the day you should be going out because that's where you'd get your serotonin boost would be through social interaction on that low mood day. Meanwhile, no one said good Shabbos to me in the whole shul. And when I walked home, no one said good Shabbos to me the whole way home. It was so interesting just to see that I had gotten covered by this, by this film that, that caused all my magnetism to disappear. And, and so we do have vibrational energy. And our vibrational energy is very much linked to our identity. 
And our identity is unfortunately very much linked to pain and, you know, certain amounts of misery that we're raised with. And, and here's the crazy thing is that people are scared to death of letting go of identity. People are really scared of letting go of identity. It's like, it's like, I don't even like who I am, but I can't, I refuse to let it go. And, and by the way, I, I do like who I am. But I know a lot of people are not so pleased with who they are. And yet, they still find themselves attached to that which they don't like. Meaning the identity that they're not so crazy about. And that that just is, is who they are. So what's the suggestion? What's the suggestion here? First of all, first of all, the, just the first thing is to get that that in my misery comfort zone, part of that is, is to be alone is part of my misery comfort zone. And we're not allowed to be alone in the from community. That's not considered okay. And so what can happen is I'll wind up putting my best foot forward, at least publicly. Meaning, I'll, I'll put my best foot forward, but I will make sure that the end result is I'm alone. And that's real misery, comfort zone stuff. Now, in, in, the, in the secular world, you can, you can go ahead and just, you know, I don't know, play video games in your parents' basement until you're 48 or something, uh, you know, on cannabis. But... It doesn't go in. Our, it doesn't go in our community. We are, are all expected to be involved in the dating process, but that dating process can also mask the deeper work. It can mask the deeper work because, hey, I'm putting my best foot out there. I'm like getting out there, but that can mask the fact that I'm really doing my best to. I'm not doing my best to, but I'm also maintaining a misery comfort zone of alone. Now, you probably think that I'm just speaking about singles right now, but I unfortunately end up with a lot of couples, married couples, who maintain alone. They maintain alone married. Uh, recently, a Hasidic man told me this amazing story that was really just the genesis of his whole personality. And, and he told me this story, and I said, wow, and that is... That is an amazing story. Like, I feel like I understand you so much better now. And I said, how long are you married? How long are you married? So he says, I'm married uh, 20 years. And I said, what does your wife think of this story? And he says, my wife, I never told her this story. And like, this story is what shaped you and you never told the wife the story. He said, it never came up. Never came up. And, and I'm sure he doesn't know her stories either. But, the, but the, the misery comfort zone and the identity of alone are, are you know, they're, they're certainly linked together. And so I just want to talk for a few minutes about our work. What, it, what would be my work if, if my whole thing was to get alone? And by the way, I, I get alone too. I go for alone sometimes. Like I will, um, there's, there's quick ways to get alone in my home. Like number one, I criticize my wife. 
Right? Criticism in marriage is a one-way street. The woman to the man. That is completely allowed. Criticism from the man to the woman is never allowed. And but if you want to be, you know, left alone, and feel the the you know the frost, criticize it. And I will. Okay, maybe not anymore, but over the years, for sure. I and mean, we're married three decades, uh, but over the years, I would certainly criticize her to be alone. I would I would come home late just to have her a little upset so I could be alone. And it took me a long time to stop trying to be alone. It took me a long time to do that. And it meant, and for me to do that, I had to break through. I had to break through why. Why I want that. Why do I want that? What's it all about? And how do I get around it? And that's the last thing I'd like to talk about is how to get around it. The way around alone is, is the way around most things that have to do with identity. And, and that is to go into a deep state of bitul, bitul, the self-nullification, ego death. That, that to, the way out of it is to lose all identity to really let go of all identity. Now, letting go of all identity is, um, it's certainly famous for the traditions in India. I mean, it's very Eastern to, to you know, shave your head and put on a, a uh, bed sheet and, you know, stare at your navel for 12 years. You know, you will definitely be no one at the end of those 12 years, 100%. No one, probably electric vibration at that point, meaning you're going to be like magnetic to everybody, although people might be running from their lives over, you know, in your, your orange bed sheet. But the, I think that it's under, underestimated Judaism's approach to self-nullification. But if you look into the Sfarim, no matter which path you take, whether it be more the Breslev path, whether it be the Litvish and Musser path, whether it be the Chabad path, which is super interesting, which is to meditate on the godless Hashem so much that you disappear completely, like you just disappear into, into Hashem. And, you know, obviously that takes a serious head, you know, to, to be able to study those Kabbalistic um, works about Hashem to the point where you're disappearing. You know, but I've been there, I've studied them, and I've been in Chaburas that went there. Um, then, then you got the less traditional, you know, the ne- less traditional psychedelic thing that's, you know, everyone's crazy about psychedelic therapy. But that's like become, according to the universities, you know, I'm not necessarily an advocate, but according to you know, Hebrew University, Tel Aviv University, Johns Hopkins, uh, New York University, UCLA, like every every top school in the world is basically saying that they're having 80% effectivity in um, psychedelic therapies. And and they're not even talking about the self-nullification that takes place there. I Meaning they're talking about, depri- uh, they're talking about therapy-resistant, uh, treatment-resistant depression, and they're talking about... Um, 
addiction, they're talking about um, post-traumatic stress disorder, but the things that it was actually originally used for thousands of years ago in the, the tribes where those medicines are from was for self-nullification, to become one with Hashem, to become one with the vibration of reality, with Elokus. And what happens with those people, I suppose, after enough times, I don't know if it takes one time, ten times, three times, whatever it is, but their, their vibrations go, go pretty magnetic after that. And their ability to interact and is, is quite strong after that. I have a upcoming, uh, for men, whoops. My sentence. And I'd like to see for a police to play it. And please excuse me. Yeah, cool. Well, Wendy, how are you thinking? You took away my last one, though. You can end the video. Cool. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. Um, the, uh, so I've been running the Possible Use Seminar now for um, 23 years. I have 13,000 graduates. Uh, we have five centers around the world. I very rarely do it in Jerusalem just because of Corona and then the war and everything. But I do have one this Sunday um, for men. Uh, there are women's ones once in a while. But that is definitely a vibrational transformation where people are able to go into a... a in, I mean, it's very intense. It's sponsored by Kleenex tissue, meaning there's, you're flopping around like a fish out of water. Um, don't worry, the lights are off. It's pitch black for that. And women lead the women's, I lead the men. And I have other men's leaders leading men's. But it's going to be going on all next week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, five hours a night, 6.30 to 11.30 p.m. on Shmonev. You can go online to rabbiyomtov.com. And they also take place on, uh, in London, New York, New Jersey. And then I have one offset for various satellites when they bring in to different cities. Um, but that has, been, that has been a game changer for so many people in a very loving, 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 safe and beautiful path to to self-nullification without having to go through hell. You know, it's not easy, but it's not hell, and it's very loving and caring to go through it. But that's another way of doing this. Anyway, so I want to bless everybody, including myself, to have that vibrational essence that's within our true identity, that is our eternal identity, our chilekalakamimo, that we should all be blessed to have that be our identity, for that to shine so strong I bless us all that it shines so strong that all the identity we got to get rid of actually just sheds without us having to even go in there. Most people have to go in, but how about that our light shines so strong that everything else just falls away and we should all be blessed to be connected and, and to have all connections from our most intimate to the stranger on the street. May we all be as one. Amen. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.